Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. This episode is another in the series of conversations with publishers, which aims to find out more about the people who decide what gets published. This week, Doug Armato, director of the University of Minnesota Press. I suspected Doug would be interesting to talk to from his Twitter feed, and I wasn't disappointed. Many of his tweets are about his deep and eclectic reading. Some are about politics and publishing. Some could perhaps be categorised as observations of daily life, such as this recent one. The QAnon taxidermist around the corner got his message board letters back. It's going to be a long fall. Doug has been director at Minnesota since 1998. And in this interview, we talked about his career both before and after his arrival in Minneapolis. The press has been there since 1925. On its website it says, Minnesota is a mid-sized university press. If so... I think it would be fair to say it punches well above its weight in terms of reputation and impact. Its best-selling title is Terry Eagleton's Literary Theory and Introduction, which has sold more than 250,000 copies since it was published in 1983. I'm exactly the right generation to have been excited about that book's appearance. But the first time I was really aware of the Minnesota name on a book was in the early 90s, when the press published musicologist Susan McClary's Feminine Endings, Music, Gender and Sexuality. As the blurb for the second edition said, When it was originally published in 1991, Feminine Endings was immediately controversial for its unprecedented intermingling of cultural criticism and musical studies, an approach that came to be called the New Musicology. I was then at the start of my own career in publishing, and I remember buying McClary's book and being excited by that bold intermingling and realising Minnesota was clearly a publisher to watch. I won't summarise here the evolution of the press in the years since, as Doug and I discussed that in the interview you're about to hear. Suffice it to say, if you open their full catalogue, you'll find in addition to the academic works of social and cultural analysis for which they're best known, new fiction children's books, cookery, titles of regional interest, and work in translation from Balzac and Derrida to the first part of a tetralogy by a little-known Norwegian writer 
who won the Nobel Prize for her epic novels about the Middle Ages. We also talk about Manifold, a project the press describes as an innovative platform to publish and read open access books online, and a way to extend the reach of academic publishing. A word of warning, about halfway through the interview, there was a bout of yapping from the pet salon near Doug's house. It doesn't last long, it's not too obtrusive, but you will probably notice it. I began the interview by asking Doug about the last few months, and the transition to remote working, which the press implemented in the course of four days this spring. Well, it's, it's, it's obviously had a lot of challenges, and in, in a way, the, the press very quickly adapted um, to remote work. We have a, a very well-meshed uh, group of uh, staff who have been together for a long time, and we've almost become more productive. Um, but the real concern is the places where we interface with other parts of the book world, um, you know, just the perils of, of libraries, the perils of bookstores, the perils of authors um, trying to find the time to write their manuscripts. And you can really see how fragile things are as you talk to those individuals and those partners. You know, but if they're fragile, they're also, um, as the saying goes, uh, unbelievably resilient and creative. And for the most part, they've, they've found ways to get it done. Peculiarly, you know, our book sales have been, the in this sort of period of the summer, have been the best they've been in five or six years. And I think that part of that is, you know, what what is more socially distanced than reading? You know, we're all finding time to do it. So it, it's been in, in its own way a, a rewarding time. Um, but still, you sort of look at the challenges which will continue to confront us um, in the next few months, and, and you're concerned. You're very concerned about that. I mean, we're talking on the first of September. The new school year has started in many places. or is about to start. University students in some places are going back. That we're, we're still clearly in a time of of great uncertainty. Having got through those initial months, how are you sort of looking to the the next six months? You know, things haven't returned to normal, won't return to normal. So what does the next sort of six to 12 months look like from your perspective? I think that, you know, we're, we're actually just trying to do as much with alternate delivery systems as we possibly can, not because we want to use them, but because we want to have them available. And so uh, aside from the, the print publishing business, which is really the core of the press, you know, we, we also have a very active digital publishing operation and having that ready to go at the point that something else breaks down or falls apart is is really critical so i think especially when you get to the the student course market um you know being able to serve those books directly from our own um digital publishing infrastructure is is really important and to sort of think through those backup plans um but i should say that it's also for the long-term health of all of us in uh, scholarly publishing and publishing in general we have to do everything we can to continue pointing our business at bookstores and libraries, because if they don't survive, we'll have a truly beggared system. So we're looking at that backup plan, but um, you know, still trying to keep the primary ecosystem of the business intact. And I was looking at your um, your full catalogue earlier today, and it's, it's very impressive, and we can maybe talk about some of its, uh, its, its attributes a bit later. But I wondered, have you 
Have you made changes to the mix of what you're publishing? Have you has the publication program been slimmed down, or has it has it gone through exactly as you planned? You know, twelve months ago. We planned a slimming down, um, and then people just kept buying books, and so <laughs> the slimming cool. down would have really been a, a, a wrong direction. Um, you know, we, we did think we could suffer, especially on the aside from the scholarly part of what we do. Um, we have a very active um, trade publishing program and also a regional publishing program for our our state and community and those parts of it have really been succeeding um, tremendously and so we haven't really found a, a, a part which has weakened yet um, that that could right. still happen but uh, there seems to be a lot of dedication among readers and uh, we've been able to reach them so far so you know, we do imagine that, you know, there might come a time when we might have to start shifting the, the mix or the balance or how we're doing things. Um, but at this point, um, readers have responded really tremendously to what we've been doing. Well, we will come back to your role as director of the press. But I wanted to ask you to go back to, I think it's 1978. And you are what you describe as a stationary flaneur at the desk, the reception desk at Columbia University Press. And that was, the, that was your introduction to the University Press um, world. So tell me, how did you come to be there? Were you sort of bitten by the bug when you were there that um, sort of set your future? Or was it a mixture of chance and or direction? It was entirely chance. Um, in my imagination, I, I thought that I was going to be a journalist. Um, that was where I felt my um, interests were pointing. Uh, but then a friend of mine was working as a student, uh, undergraduate student at Columbia University Press. And when he was doing that, the receptionist went on a two-week fishing trip, and they needed someone to sit at the desk. And uh, it was remarkable because in those days, publishing was a much more physical business. Authors visited, physical mail arrived, books arrived. And so being at that position, I was able to see this remarkable anthill of a operation um, that all of these ideas flowed through. And I've always been a book person. And so sort of getting an understanding of exactly how that happened and of the publisher's role in it uh, was very alluring. And after Frank came back from his uh, two-week uh, fishing trip, um, they found something else for me to do. And then they found something else for me to do. And they continued to find things for me to do. And I, I've been at it ever since without really a, a day with, without a publishing job of one sort or another. One of the things they found for you to do was really a, a kill or cure kind of mission because you catalogued the entire backlist of Columbia University Press, which meant looking at the contract and physically examining every single printed edition of a Columbia University Press book. I can see, you know, a lesser man might have been sunk by such a challenge. <laughs> No, it was a really remarkable task to be set. Um, and it, it was simply, I guess you could almost say it was in the, the early days of data, um, you know, when, when you really had to have, when, when books were being turned into listings and, you know, union catalogs, and when you really needed to know what was in every book beyond just, you know, the author's name and the title and the page count. So it really did involve looking at every book as a way of creating a very rudimentary database, um, which could then be part of larger databases. So it was a it was a period of going back. And I, I think that, you know, one of the highlights of it, and it was a remarkable moment, was 
going back in the early contracts and finding a contract signed by George Gissing. And that's the oh. last thing that I would have expected. And, you know, literally there was, you know, George Gissing's autograph oh. on a book about his travails when he left England to work very briefly in America, hoping that he would make his fortune. But as, as happened to so many, finding that it, it wasn't that easy. Now, you had a brief flirtation with trade publishing. You were basic books for, for a time. But did you feel that really there was something particularly well suited in your temperament in the university press world? Because then you then you, you went back to the university press world quite quickly. Yeah, it was the period um, working at basic books, um, which was fascinating. You know, I did learn that there was a basic judgment being made that if a, if, if a book didn't sell, the next step was to say, well, we'll never do anything like that again. So you could publish a, a, a tremendous book or a great contribution to thought or scholarship, but the level of opprobrium, which would come up when a book, when, when people thought a book would sell and it didn't, it didn't quite come to finger pointing. Um, but nevertheless, there was always a sense of, well, why did we think this was a good idea? And the thing I've loved about scholarly publishing all along is that, you, you know, you're reporting to scholars and, and not to um, stockholders. And so there's room, you know, to do work that you just feel is itself, you know, critical and important to, you know, have between covers. And so that that was largely the difference. So I learned a lot um, at Basic, but I also felt from some of the books I worked on that I thought were really important that the sense that the publisher was basically disowning them <laughs> was was really hard to tolerate. And you were quite a few years in, in marketing for um, a, a couple of different university presses. I mean, for someone listening to this who maybe has come of age in the last 10 years or so, I mean, the, the job of marketing university press books in, in I guess, the 90s was, was quite different before social media campaigns and all, all the things that perhaps are taken for granted today. Oh, uh, yeah, it was a it was a totally different world. Um, you know, the, the sort of glory of marketing in a way and of, of coming up in marketing is that you felt like you were the voice for not just the scholar authors, but the scholar readers to really understand, you know, their needs and what excited them. And to me, that was a great thing to be able to bring to the publishing table, you know, that our, our, our community wants these books. This is what they're excited about. But the other side of it is, is that, um, you know, the library, the, the library situation was very different than um, libraries were very well funded. And so, Basically, 70% of university press sales in my early career would, would go straight to libraries. And that was a way in which you could always feel that the, the books had that immediate assurance. And yeah. you could use the other 30% of the market to play around, to try different kinds of things, um, to reach different audiences, the sort of elusive general reader. But still, you, you had sort of a sense that there was a home for the books. And that's very different now. I mean, every book in one way or another is a trade book. I'm curious to know, when you're in the university press world in the United States, which is much bigger than in the UK, there are so many more publishers, so many different sizes of publishers and, and orientations of publishers. And say you're in your, in your 30s, are you sort of thinking in terms of 
if my career goes the way I'd like it to, you've got a short list of, you know, mental short list of presses, which you think be a good home would be the kind of list, the kind of character, the kind of the right size for your own, you know, as I say, your sort of temperament, the things that make you excited to be in publishing. I mean, I know you've been at um, at Minnesota for, for over 20 years. So, you know, if you sort of think back in the years before you went there, was Minnesota sort of on a mental hit list? It was later, um, you know, but I think it's always my reading interests that have sort of led my publishing interests. And uh, so when I was in New York and began thinking about other places to go, I just had a a deep curiosity about, you know, both the Midwest and the South and wanted to experience them. And I looked for presses that were studying those areas and uh, and Louisiana State University Press, which had a, a great history of publishing on uh, race and uh, issues of the sort of breakdown of the country and its re- and its reformation had a job open and I thought well this is perfect because I felt it would give me an experience of a different place and I continued to sort of follow that path towards different kinds of publishers but as for Minnesota I think it was I was at the time at a very traditional, one could almost say rock-ribbed publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press, um, which published highly authoritative books and, you know, generally speaking, was uh, more involved in in knowledge than critique. Uh, And all that time I was watching what Minnesota was doing and just this incredible sort of lightness and ability to maneuver and to, you know, look at things from a new perspective. And it, it always excited me. It was the press I loved while I was at other presses. And so, when the job came up at Minnesota, I thought, well, this is not only a press I love, it's also one where I really feel I know what to do. Oh, well, that makes my next question really easy. When you arrived in 1988, what was it you felt that you that you wanted to do? It was very much to take what the press had been doing, but um, bring it to a wider audience, that I thought it had a, a wider social interest and a wider political interest than um, just speaking to other scholars. I thought that you could take that same perspective and that same critical approach and create, you know, a press that spoke to individuals, that spoke internationally, that spoke to regular citizens and could have a lot more impact. And in, in a way, it wasn't that different from almost doing a reverse angle on basic books. Um, you know, basic books was a publisher very closely associated with the rise of uh, neoconservatism. And so uh, at Minnesota, I think I saw a way to simply come at that from the other angle and to, um, you know, try and be a a basic books um, for progressives and for the left. And the list when you started, was it was it less broad than it has become now because as I say I was I was looking earlier today at the catalogue and it's it's ranges you know it's it's amazing the the different kinds of writing and the different subjects and the way that you know you you bring all that together in a in a single catalogue you know from cookbooks to to fiction to journals to scholarly books to theoretical books to new translations to classic literature it's um it's a very rich mix so was some of that you were doing since you came to the press? 
Well, I mean, the press was a, a highly theoretical um, press. Uh, it was the first press which was really defined by a critical perspective rather than by discipline. And that critical perspective was drawn from European social thought. And you could almost say that there was a French Revolution at Minnesota because it had been a sort of standard state university press up until the late 70s and, and early 80s when it simply embraced European social thought and imported a lot of that to the United States. I remember a, a friend of mine when I was working at a Louisiana State University, a friend of mine who had come to the faculty there from Yale, and he just sort of came up to me one day and said, I don't know what's going on at Minnesota, but they're signing everyone and everything. Everything is happening at Minnesota. And so that was what first put it on my radar. But I have to admit, um, in terms of the breadth of the list that you mentioned, that what I foresaw for Minnesota was, for the most part, uh, achieved in, in about my first 10 years, um, what I really wanted to have happen. And since then, I've had brilliant colleagues in editorial and in marketing and design, and they've taken the list in directions I never imagined and with enthusiasms I never mentioned. And uh, being able to open up the press as sort of a creative venture, you know, across the staff and see what people wanted to do. I, I never imagined we'd do children's books. That was never something I imagined. I certainly didn't think our presence in areas, which, which has been very successful, is cooking and other areas would be um, something we would develop. But um, we've opened it up, and uh, I think the press has been richer for it. So you presumably are the person who is keeping, I mean, I imagine not exclusively, but one of the, the key people who is keeping an eye on the overall mix, you know, to make sure that certain flavours don't become too pronounced at the expense of others in, in that mix. We're obsessive about that mixture. Um, that's, in a way, the, the hallmark. Um, we plan the list. Um, we, we meet every six weeks to look over the forthcoming lists. We make sure that we have what we need um, in each of the areas that we publish in and that we don't have too much. And we're constantly adjusting that sort of title mix in order to get what we need for each of our kinds of customers. And we're, we're absolutely obsessive about it. And then when the time comes when we want to do something new, and that time comes pretty much every week, we have to find space for it because the press yeah. has not grown in title output basically in nearly 10 years. And so to do something new or to do more of something that's working for us, we, we need to do less of something else. And so we're constantly changing that mixture in order to do everything we want to do. And does that sometimes mean withdrawing entirely from area or does it just mean sort of slightly, you know, pulling the slider down a bit? It's been more of a ratcheting up and down um, over yeah. time uh, that we, we try and never pull totally out of an area. But but still, you know, when we begin to de-emphasize something, people notice that and that, that can be a, a tricky issue to try and explain uh, to, to authors when you've been like the go-to press. And sometimes authors are still impacted by their first view of us, even if that was three decades ago. And they'll say, oh, well, you're the leading press in my area. And it's hard to sort of say, well, not not recently, really. <laughs> you should talk to this other press because they're doing that work now. And of course, you have a relationship with the university, don't you? I, I saw you'd put a little journal entry online, I think about five years ago, 
you said I, I'm en route to campus for some administrative obeisance, and I wasn't sure. If, <laughs> I, thought, I thought you could you could read quite a lot into that, or, or you know, who who knows what you're actually going off to do? And I imagine some, you know, you're having to go and answer to some committee, but maybe you were just going on a on a on a training course or something. <laughs> but but I mean, I guess the serious point is, it's not just the scholarly community of potential authors and readers that you have to be in contact with and communicating your purpose and your aims and your mission to, you also presumably have senior people in the university that you've got to convince that developing one area, perhaps pulling back from another area, is consonant with the press's mission. Yeah, that that's very much a part of, of my job specifically. Um, you know, we all interface with the university at one point or another, but it's it's key to me to be able to, you know, explain to the university what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and, and where we're where we're succeeding. Um, but we've also tried to really grow on our institution's strengths. Um, you know, looking at areas that the university's investing in and investing in them ourselves. So uh, we have I mean, not to brag, but I mean, I think we have the premier architectural history publishing list in the country, um, certainly one of the two or three best. And that was at a time when our university was investing in its school of architecture. And so we reached out to them and said, well, we, where can we be involved in this? Uh, Native American studies, which is one of our very strongest lists, you know, came directly out of the concern of the university to represent that. So we, we keep a close eye on our, our university and, and try and see ways that we can grow in, in harmony with it. Now, we've talked a little bit about the, the subject matter of the publishing, but other things I associate with Minnesota are um, publishing simultaneously in paperback to try and make books affordable, and also the fact that you've put your entire backlist into electronic format, which must have been a, a, <laughs> another, big, another big undertaking, perhaps, part of your, sort of your, ca- your cataloguing instinct that goes back. Are, are, those, are those initiatives that, that you spearheaded? Yeah, those initiatives were both, one of them predates me, um, but I think it's a great part of our history, which is the um, putting everything out in paperback. Uh, When I was a very young publisher, um, so we're talking now about the the early 80s, I went to one of the Association of American University Presses, as it was known then, uh, annual meetings, and the director of Minnesota, um, my predecessor to Removed, was there and we just started talking and he just said to me with this big smile, he said, we're going to do everything in paperback. We're going to do everything in paperback and in hardback and they'll all have trade. He was, he was a great systematizer. He wanted to do everything the same way. Um, and so I, I listened to him and I thought, well, that's really extraordinary because it was very rare at that point. But he had a belief that, you know, if he published that way, the books would be read by more people. And uh, he was right. And he created a kind of university press paperback revolution. And so uh, the, the, his name was Jack Irvin. And I thought of him at the point when we decided similarly that every book we published was going to be available immediately in all ebook formats upon release. And a lot of presses were reluctant to do that or like wanted to delay the ebooks or just do some. And I thought, no, you know, really thinking of this press's tradition of always prioritizing getting things in the hands of readers and affordability, you know, this is what we should do. I guess going beyond 
even that instinct. I, I saw your reference to endosmosis and exosmosis of, of, of the book. And I guess maybe does your manifold initiative sort of fall within that of sort of taking the, you know, the limitations of the book by limitations, I mean, sort of the physical boundaries of the book and trying to go beyond them and find ways to explore and explode those boundaries. Yeah, Manifold um, came out of some things we'd been thinking about for a while. Um, and when the um, Andrew Mellon Foundation had an RFP for projects that would think beyond um fixed formats beyond bound formats we, we thought that everything we'd be we'd been thinking about could in fact be sort of bundled together into manifold but what it it came from most directly is that if you talk to scholars and it's really important to do it the scholar authors and a lot of directors if i had one critique of my my class as it were it would be that uh, they don't get out enough they don't go to the scholarly conferences they don't attend sessions and really hear what people are saying. And all I heard about were things that scholar authors wanted to do that presses weren't willing to do. The presses said, no, we can't do that, or that's not what we do, or this is how we do that, but it was only halfway. And my, my fear was is that if as presses we didn't have an answer to the needs of networked books, to the needs of uh, rapid publication, to the needs of books that can change um, as their topics change and can be interactive with social media. If we didn't do it, someone else did or the scholars would do it themselves. And so to me, it was having an answer to all of those authorly desires. And, and to me, that's the core of publishing. It's to listen to your authors and try and you know find a way to give them what they want to realize their vision and not try and limit that. So that was really what was behind um, the sort of creation of this digital platform. And where, where does it stand now? You Because you make it available to other presses. It's not a, a Minnesota-exclusive platform by any means. No, it, it isn't. There's, um, there's well over um, two dozen publishers using it, including quite a few university presses. Um, you know, what we discovered with Manifold is that as we made it available, all sorts of people brought their own dreams and, and also their needs to it. And so we found that it had other uses than we'd imagined. So our immediate plan was that it would be a platform for scholarly publishers and also library publishers. But over time, it became a platform that other people found other ways to use. So just recently, for instance, in Spanish, the entire works of Perez Galdos have become available on Manifold. And I mean, I really can't think of a better use of the platform, I have to say, um, because, you know, here, here it is taking something which was fugitive, which people couldn't find. And if they did find it, you know, it was just stuck in PDFs where it couldn't be easily moved around. And, and here's someone who found a way to use it. And, uh, we've recently heard of another publisher and actually a commercial publisher that, that may put as many as, um, 1500 titles up on Manifold. Um, to make them available to their audiences. And so that that all really excites me. But people are finding their own way to use it. Doug, I saw in 2012, you, you gave an address in which you, you said, really, you know, talk of the university press world being in crisis has been going on since about the 1970s. So it's really sort of, in your terms, it's sort of career long. But that, you know, we shouldn't mistake that for some for complacency, though, on your part. But maybe... It would be interesting, as we sort of draw to a close, for you to sort of 
try to frame how you see the state of the university press world today? Because I can see that perpetual talk of crisis doesn't really serve any positive purpose. So how do you how do you see the landscape now? Admitting that we're in a time of, you know, profound challenge and change for all sorts of um, obvious reasons. I think that, you know, the, the tricky thing to me within the um, university press environment is that there's a fundamental debate, a fundamental divide between those who, um, to dichotomize things, which I try not to do, but I'll do it in this case, um, between um, those who think of themselves as publishers and those who think of themselves as units of universities. Presses have always really been in between those two. Um, But right now we're sort of torn between people who feel that we should be part of a system of scholarly communication and people who feel, no, we're we're publishers. Fundamentally, we're publishers. In my view, and this is simply my view, it's even more critical than ever that that we be publishers at this point, um, that we be professional um, publishers and help authors get their word out to to those audiences in a professional way. That that's that's how university presses were founded. Um, my suspicion is that if we were to look back for several decades to the period of publish and perish, you know, what we would see is that a lot of people for professional reasons had to become authors and and didn't really want to be. That's not what they wanted to be researchers or they wanted to be teachers, but they didn't actually want to write. And I think the people that we need to invest in are those people who really want to write, those people who have the vocation of writing and publishing books. And that's who we look for currently. Um, we really want to make sure we're not just publishing something which someone had to write. We want to publish the people who, who wanted to write something and who have that vocation. So that's, to me, I think the business is going to go, you know, more and more back to those origins of being publishers and less just yeah. parts of this system. I think you, you've also emphasized, you know, the fact that that as publishers, the task is not simply to reflect what's in the academy and replicate it in, in sort of printed form. Publishers can also be trailblazers, and I guess Minnesota is a good example of that. And you described that, you know, that that interest in, in what was coming out of, of Europe and theory and the kind of social and political commitment that could be brought to publishing. So all that said, what characteristics does that mean people who commission and and work for university presses need in order to be able to steer a successful course in the books they publish that, you know, fulfil the the kind of mission that that you have at Minnesota? Well, I've referred to to university presses as an an alternate locus of accreditation, Um, you know, that university presses validate work which universities themselves are being very conservative entities are not yet ready to validate because when you validate something at a university it costs an incredible amount of infrastructure and presses are just much more nimble than that so you know for a press to perform that role what you have to have are are people who and, and other people have said this who are skilled at pattern recognition at sort of seeing things as they're coming together at sort of fine fields as they're emerging and then you have to have press leadership that's willing to invest in that. I've sometimes said um, to people at other presses that, to me, the books that I look for and that we look for to group are books that scare us a little bit. Um, you know, books that do something we haven't seen or that we're not really sure 
if they're right or if they're making the right decisions, you know, or if they're if they're sort of conceptualized right. But that that's where we have to invest. It's in the work that's that's adventurous in that way. And that doesn't mean there isn't a role for the very best book that one can publish on, say, um, oh, I don't know, on William Faulkner, you know, but I think that the, you know, the, the, the point for us is to always find these, these edges of scholarship where people are beginning to find interest and to just keep advancing those. And that, that's our mission. And I think that's, that's where you find the readers too. It's the books that people need to move the conversation forward. I know that a lot of people don't really pay much attention to publishers' colophons, but what qualities would you like the aware reader to associate with the Minnesota colophon? I think that what's important to us is that people see the list as uh, risk-taking, breaking new areas, um, avant-garde. Um, these are all things that we've we've attempted to do over the years. And uh, we do have, um, I don't really want to call it a short attention span, but I will say that we're always looking for something new and something that, um, you know, we feel we haven't seen before and that needs to be done. And when an area, even areas that we pioneered, that we feel that other people are doing it or other publishers are doing it, we feel it's time for us to disinvest there and, and look for something else. That's the kind of work that we're always looking for, something which moves something, you know, a little bit askance from where people had been looking. And I'm not going to ask you to choose a favorite child from your, your <laughs> list, but are the books which you think Minnesota has published that no other press would have published in that way, that there is a sort of a Minnesota special source, if I can put it that way? Well, I mean, actually, one of the things that we say to ourselves internally is that there, there are certain books we publish just because no one else will publish them, because we feel that we have a duty to because other people either don't get it or in one way or another, they're, they're scared of it. A book which um, comes to mind um, is Tim Morton's Hyper Objects, um, you know, which is a book that a lot of people have taken issue with. And I think you could even say rightly take an issue with it, but it, it moved forward the discussion of how we see the world we're living in and its peril. And, you know, to me, that was a book that a lot of people just didn't get. And I think that probably the most successful books that I've worked on have been books that have even had negative peer reviews. You know, when we've gone to our board and say, you know, these reviews don't add up to publication, but they add up to the fact that this book is doing something interesting. And um, and our board has gone along with that. So I don't know if that answers your question, um, but we always want to feel that we have the, you know, we have the confidence and the belief in our press to feel that, you know, we can take those kinds of risks. Here is my very last question, Doug. How do you find the time to commission books? yourself with all the other things that you're doing and what are the things that that still sort of set your pulse racing with excitement when you when you're getting close to signing them up i think that um you know in terms of finding the time that only really works because um i have really great colleagues who take on so much responsibility and keep so many parts of the operation moving if as director i had to be in the middle of everything and step into everything, then I could never do any of the acquiring work that I do. What gets my pulse racing, you know, again and again is when an author tells me something that I just don't know or haven't heard of. 
something that seems totally unique. And, you know, very often the first thing I do when a book hits me that just seems way, way off in some other dimension is to go to the Internet, obviously, and start doing web searches. And if I don't find anything where those ideas are out there, if it's just something which is really generative and coming up with something new, and if I'm a little bit scared, as I said, if I feel some sort of butterflies in my stomach, you know, then I feel like maybe I'm onto something. I was talking to Doug Armato, director of the University of Minnesota Press. You can find Doug on Twitter, where he tweets as at Noctambulate. Do check out the press's latest catalogue on their website. It contains an abundance of enticing things. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 60 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. And there are now around half a dozen episodes in this Conversations with Publisher sub-series, and more planned. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.